Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, divers. Or should I say, hola. Hola. (laughs) Because we're going to be doing a deep dive into Spain today. España. Because we're doing a book club on uh, Don Quixote in the next two episodes for our book club, we just decided to lean right into that and immerse ourselves even more and do an episode on books set in Spain. I just adored Spain when we went. That was our last overseas holiday, oh, pre, you know, yes. in, in the before times. Yes. And it really surprised me how much I loved it. Mm. Like I, I knew we were going to have a lovely holiday and mm. it would be, I absolutely adored it. Yes. With, it yeah. really touched my heart in, in a way I just did not expect. And I'm really keen to go back. It's such an easy place to be in. Um, yeah, it was so easy. Yeah, You're right. Really easy I think place. I thought it was going to be hard. I thought there would be food that I wouldn't like. Yeah. The food was fabulous. Yeah, fabulous. One of our most recent overseas holidays, which again is not recent, relative, was Barcelona. And I feel the same way. I just found it just a wonderful city, easy city to be in, just loved it. And you walk along and there's trees with oranges in the street. I know. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. Anyway, I just loved it. So we've got two books today. Did you want to kick off with your first one, Lou? I'll do The Shadow of the Wind first by Carlos Ruiz. Zafon, trying to do my very Spanish, <laughs> Spanish, Spanish pronunciation. So apologies to people <laughs> who who speak who are native Spanish speakers. This was published in Australia by Tex Publishing, but it was originally published in the Spanish by Planet Publishing in two thousand and one. And I read it way back, gosh, twenty years ago. How, mm. how is that even possible? It seems far more recent than that. And to my shame, I did not realise there have been three subsequent books. That's not something to be ashamed of. Well, just I, I just on. can't believe that I, I haven't known that. He's actually got more than three. Well, I mean, in this in series, series, in this true. series, I mean, yeah. yeah. And The Shadow of the Wind is a gothic, mysterious, and at times a foreboding tale set in Barcelona shortly after the Civil War. A young boy, the 10-year-old Daniel Sempere, is growing up with his father because his mother has died of cholera when he was only four. And Daniel's father is one of the many bibliophiles in the city. Um, he's a secondhand and rare book dealer. And there's a group of them. They're a community of men that Daniel is familiar with and spends time with. And the book opens on an auspicious occasion. Daniel's father is taking him to a secret place down some back alleyways in Barcelona. And, and it, I love how evocative all the streets and alleyways are, taking him to the cavernous cemetery of lost books, where books that are out of print have been rescued. And as this is his first visit, Daniel is given the opportunity to select a book and he chooses The Shadow of the Wind by Julian Carax. And 
the day he chooses the book, he devours it. He reads it and he devours it. And he immediately wishes to know more about Julien. But he soon discovers that this is the last remaining copy of the book. And this spurs him on to find out more and more about this author. And this is consistent with, I suppose, almost the prophecy of the cemetery that books will possess and transform the reader who rescues them. Yeah. It's just magnificent. And it's such a great book for book lovers. Sure is. And so against the backdrop of Franco's rule and the sort of ever-present sort of shadowy forces, we go on this adventure with Daniel from about the age 15 as he sort of navigates his teenage years and he becomes a young man and he's always searching and discovering more and more about Julian Carac, Julian Carax. And there's two things that we learn early in the book, which I think I can share. It's believed that Julian Carax was killed in Barcelona before the Civil War. That's the first thing. And the second thing is there is a person lurking who has the name of one of the characters in Julian's book who is also searching for Carax's books and burning them. Lurking is the word. It is, isn't it? It's so good. <laughs> and it's not long before the lines blur between the things that are happening in Daniel's life, the relationships that he's having with friends, and things that he's finding out about Julien as a young man in the pre-Civil War years. And, and not only are there parallels between Daniel and Julian's lives, but there's also characters from the book, The Shadow of the Wind, that resemble the people, as I say, who've, who've appear in Daniel's life. And it's interesting because he's delving into Julian's life and he's tracking down people who've known him as a child and as a young man, and they all add this sort of dramatic new layer to what Daniel knows of Julian. And, and it sort of draws Daniel into this web of relationships that threatens to spill and indeed does spill into Daniel and his father's lives and for many years going forward. And of course, every person he meets who has known Julien has their own lens Mm -hmm. and their own prejudices and their own versions of their relationships with Julien. And so perhaps Daniel can't take everything at, at front value. And in both worlds, there are themes that pervade in Julian and Daniel's life, family and loyalty are very important, friendship, and there's also the omnipresent, omnipotent forces in both of their lives. And class and status also loom quite large in this book because Daniel's father is is learned, very learned, but he's nevertheless a shopkeeper. He's of the merchant class. And many of his clients and the people that Daniel becomes involved with are actually from wealthy Barcelona families. They are their customers. And and Daniel is also being raised in a very male world where women are concerned and girls with his very fleeting memories of his mother. He's quite shy and naive and that sort of makes him, I think, easily manipulated and in fact quite melodramatic as well, uh, you know, in, in the way that he deals with the women in his life, particularly in his determination to rescue them from some of the predicaments they find themselves in. The book, for me, at times felt quite Dickensian. Yes. And I don't know if it's just that there's this cemetery, this sort of labyrinth of alleyways and, it, you know, the, the gothic 
and feel you to feel the like book. there's fog everywhere. Yes, you do, don't you? It just, and it's, it's like all dark. It's everywhere. descending from the page. Yeah. Sort of coming up Very from the page, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. There's a couple of fabulous characters. There's a homeless man, Fermin, that Daniel rescues and brings home, who has a, a very colourful past as an anti-Franco resistance fighter. And, and he's a really good egg and he's dependable. And he turns out to be uh, very loyal to Daniel and his father. And I've seen him described as Daniel's Sancho, which I thought was oh, rather lovely that we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing Don Quixote because, yeah, he's definitely a literary sidekick. There's no question about that. And then there's another merchant in their circle, a watchmaker, who is known and loved and tolerated by his friends because he steals out of his home at night to dress as a woman and to perform in an underground club. And yeah, so there's sort of subversive behaviour in these times and quite a risky thing to do given that there's an authoritarian regime. And that brings me to the sort of, there's also some archetypal villains in the book. Um, There's a sadistic assassin who is now the head of police in Barcelona and he has his own menacing agenda. So I can thoroughly recommend this book. I I actually enjoyed it more. I I really enjoyed it more the second time. I, I couldn't possibly go into the plot of this book. It, no. it, is, oh. it, it is as labyrinthian yes. as the cave itself, isn't yeah, it? it? Absolutely. It just, I can't even really remember. I've read it twice and yeah. I can't really even remember all of the twists and it's, turns. It's just full of twists yeah. and turns. Yeah. Can um, you remember what era it's set in? Well, it's just post-Civil War, Spanish Civil War, so, so 30s. Isn't it 36 is the end of the Spanish okay, Civil War, okay. I yeah, think? You're I think. right. So just before, so just yeah. as the outbreak of yes. World War II. Yeah, so it's pre, it's Franco still, so it's pre. Oh, okay, yes. Mind you, Franco was in power for years he and years and years. He was there for a while. Okay, yeah, uh, so that's it, 30, 30s into the 40s. Yeah. yeah, okay. So it really interesting, Ruiz Zafón is revered in Spain as a national writer, absolutely yeah. revered. It was so sad when he died. I know, I, I, I know. very upset. Yeah. One other interesting bit of trivia Robert Graves, the British poet, it's his daughter, Lucia Graves, who translates these books. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting because they're seamless. They're absolutely beautiful. I'm definitely going to read the the third in the four that I really want to read. I should also mention, I think when we reviewed, we did one of our crime series, I reviewed Scott Thoreau's book. Yes. And there was the mechanism of a machina, the device, the literary device, uh, whereby what seems like a hopeless situation is suddenly resolved by an unexpected oh, occurrence. Too, yes. And, and he uses this device oh, in the okay. shadow of the wind. I'm going to think about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some people are quite critical of them because it, it's sort of a way of wrapping up it a gets book. you out of a tight <laughs> corner. Spot as a writer, yes. <laughs> so that's The Shadow of the Wind, Carlos Ruiz Safon. And isn't the title so evocative? I know. Obviously, the wind can't cast a shadow, but does yes. it? Yes. <laughs> what, what is it there? It's superb. Yeah. Superb no. book. I love What about you? What did you read? So, I oh. decided to... Excuse the wind, everybody. You might be, it might come through on the recording. It I'm might. not sure if it will, yeah. but we're... We do live in the, one of the windiest cities in the world, so yes. it's about time we had a windy episode. I decided to read The Tales of the Alhambra. Oh. And it's by Washington Irving. Oh, yes. So Washington Irving was American and he lived from 1783 to 1859. And he wrote lots of short stories. He wrote Rip Van Winkle. Yes, I wonder. And he wrote the novel The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And he was the American ambassador to Spain in the 1840s. And he wrote a book about Christopher Columbus and he wrote another book about the conquest of Granada and in Andalusia. And in 1829, he moved into the Alhambra Palace oh, oh, and lived wow. there. 
in Granada where he stayed for some months. And my absolutely all-time favourite thing about our trip to Spain was our day where we did a big tour of the Alhambra and I've got yes. the most beautiful photos which I'll put up on. The colours are incredible, uh, yes, aren't they? and the fountains and the, yeah. oh, I just loved it. So I'm a little bit jealous of him because he, he lived there for about half a year, I think. Mm. He requested access to the palace and because of his celebrity status, he was actually allowed to move in. And he's regarded as the first American man of letters. So he's, okay. Yeah. yeah. And he's also often called the father of American literature. Oh, okay. So that just gives yes. you a bit of an idea about him. And interestingly, he popularised the term Gotham for New York. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also the term the almighty dollar. Okay. And lots of other, he has lots of other quirky, interesting yes. contributions and influences on American culture yeah, that, okay. that you probably yeah. don't realise until you sort of look into him a bit more. Mm. And someone had recommended, you know, if you loved the Alhambra, you should read this book. So I yeah. ordered it and then it's just sat there because yes. you know, so many books <laughs> are pressing on me. But it is just the most magical place. So it was. I'm so delighted that we've done this episode because I've actually now had a chance to read this book. So this is a collection of essays sketches, little stories, fables, and it was published in 1832. Wow. And it covers sort of a variety of different stories. There are some myths. There are some real historical events that he's sort of recounting that he's been told about. And it's sort of the book that's credited with reintroducing the Alhambra to Westerners when it came out. And there was a film um, made based on the book in 1950. I think I haven't seen the film, but now that I've read it, I'd quite like to dig around and find it. The key feature about the Alhambra is that the Moors invaded Spain in 711, common era, and they were Arabs and Berbers who came from northern Africa. And they were there in Spain until 1492 when King Boabdil surrendered Granada to the Christians. And that's where that phrase, the last sigh, of, of the, the Moors. Moor, oh, okay. The Moor yeah. comes in and Salman Rushdie used yes. it in his yeah. novel, which is about India, so I don't know what the link is, but there must be one. Yes. And that was during the reign of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. So the, the big thing about the Moors is that they then introduced all this beautiful architecture and a lot of other cultural things, but for a visitor today, I think the architecture is the big thing that you really notice when you visit that part of Spain, particularly that southern part of Spain. We went to Cordoba and Granada and it's just everywhere and it's so beautiful. It's it's very symmetrical. It's got very distinctive shapes and archways and tiles and colonnades and, and there's a, a, a beautiful sensibility to it. It's very pleasing to the eye and it's quite different from the Christian style of decoration. So some of the churches were originally Muslim buildings that have then been turned into Catholic churches, which yeah, okay. is just a fascinating mm. mix to go in and see what the Christians did when they came back into control of these Muslim-designed buildings. And I find that whole mix just completely fascinating. So this is the sort of book that you can just sort of dip into and read a little bit and then put it down and read something yeah. else because they're all quite discreet little sort of snippets. One of the chapters talks about the government of Alhambra, you know, the way yes. the actual palace was organised and the fact that it is actually an ancient fortress yeah. and it contained an army of 40,000 men uh, within its precincts, which is... Not inconsiderable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And at one point it fell into ruin 
And another point, the French blew up parts of it. I mean, I'm just horrified to think the French would do that, but they did. And there's a chapter describing sort of the interior of the whole thing. And he got to sort of poke around and get keys and open up and go into rooms. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And all the changes that were made by different rulers and the things like the um, aqueduct system for the water, because the the most beautiful feature um, for me is all the beautiful fountains and the wells and the design of them all. And they're just so stunning. And to think that this was all designed so long ago and Mm. it's all still working is just, to me, so clever. I think my favourite little story that he did was he recounts a legend and it's called The Legend of the Three Beautiful Princesses. And these princesses were the daughters of the Moorish king, Muhammad. And the story starts out with Muhammad and it tells you the backstory and how he fell in love with his Christian wife and there was lots of drama around that because he was Muslim. And she came to live with him and eventually they had three daughters named Zayda, Zoraida and Zora Haida. Yeah. And they're incredibly beautiful and he's very protective of them and he sends them away and then when they reach marriageable age he brings them back. But he becomes very concerned about them and keeps them locked away in the Alhambra Palace in one section of it. But there are three young men doing gardening (laughs) underneath the windows. (laughs) I'm not going to say any more. (laughs) <laughs> but that just leads on to the most fabulous story. Um, Trouble just, brewing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you've ever visited the Alhambra or you would like to mm. visit it and if you're interested in the Moors' influence in Spanish culture and architecture, you might enjoy this. It's, it is quite an old yes. book. I didn't find it hard. You know, it wasn't too florid. I think his writing's quite plain. Yes. Uh, uh, so I didn't have any problem with understanding you know sometimes with really old books sort of have to go back and start that sentence again what are they saying (laughs) not not with this at all so that was tales of the alhambra by washington Irving. oh i'm fascinated fascinated by that really glad i can tick that one off yes uh what's your next one lou well i sort of also went back a little bit and uh as you know i'm a huge hemingway fan so i decided to do the sun also rises by ernest hemingway which was his first book uh, first novel, I should say. Not he, he, he published short stories before okay. this. This was his first novel, published in 1926. And I must admit, I didn't know that it was his first. So this is before the Spanish Civil War. Yes, correct. This is what you would describe as a Romana Clef, de Clef, or in German, of course, it would be a German Bildungsroman, which is a book that kind of deals with one's formative years. And there's no question that this is most definitely thinly disguised. Sort of a coming-of-age story. Yes, well, it's it's definitely thinly disguised story about Hemingway and his pals. Okay. Uh, And indeed, the the main character of the book, who is a Jake Barnes, and he is the narrator of the book, was initially called Hem in in the first manuscript. And that first manuscript, um, Hemingway sent to F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he offered some criticisms. Evidently, some of them well-received and others not so, because I don't (laughs) believe they remained friends. Uh, and the name was also changed. So it's it's The Sun Also Rises, but it's previously been published as Fiesta. Uh-huh. So Jake is living in Paris post-World War I. He is an American expat journalist, but also a veteran of the war. Of World War One. World War I. Okay. Uh, living in Paris in the frequent company of a number of other American and British expats. 
his group of friends, essentially. And they include a socialite, the Lady Brett Ashley, a writer, Robert Cohen, a Scottish bankrupt, Michael Campbell, and another travelling American who isn't an expat, he's simply travelling, Bill Gorton, and, and plenty of others as well, but they're sort of the main crew. And some of this group are, at the outset of the story, living in Paris, not living especially productive lives. They spend copious amounts of time drinking and getting drunk, lurking from bar to bar, not talking about anything especially illuminating. And on a very superficial glance, you could say, well, that's what the book's about, this group of friends. But then they decide in summer, which is about halfway through the book, actually. So half of the book is Paris, half of the book is Spain. Uh The men decide they will go to Bayonne in Spain for a fishing trip. And then they will move on to attend the annual fiesta and bullfighting season in Pamplona. And as I mentioned, I think I, think I reviewed Farewell to Arms in episode 23, Our yes, Love Letter to Italy. Yeah. Hemingway's writing is so direct and simple. And although, as I said, superficially, much of the book is taken up with these friends conversing with each other in bars and hotels. It's very dialogue-driven. You know, they walk to another bar, they return to their rooms, they wake up with hangovers, Uh. repeat. (laughs) But the absolute genius of this book is what he conveys, not by what is said, but by what is not said. And as I said, Jake is a veteran of the war, as is Bill, and there were many Americans and British and others of their generation, many of them with a level of privilege, who fled their countries post-World War I looking for something. And I think Edith Wharton described them as a lost generation. And that, that is really the, the, the sort of underlying theme of this book. These young men and one woman sort of represent this generation of lost young people who are, don't really know their place in the world anymore. There's a a huge amount of melancholy in this book and sadness. They think they're in search of new moralities, new music, new social codes, but really they're they're really quite lost. There is a, a closeness between Lady Ashley, between Brett and Jake, but something is preventing them from becoming more than close friends, which I'm not going to delve into. But as her closest friend, Jake has to witness the interest of other men in bread. And he is very private and very stoic. And as I say, he he doesn't share it with you, but you feel Jake's agony. He's just a genius in my opinion. I've got to read this. (laughs) The book is so much more about the young men than it is about Lady Brett Ashley. So there's a a very strong theme of, of what it means to be a man. Obviously, their alcoholism and drinking fuels bad behaviour. They're cruel to each other. They're aggressive. And they kind of act out their insecurities. As the group comes together again in Spain, um, they've all come from different directions. There's sort of this heightened level of emotion between them. And I can see now, I mean, I I read this a while ago. And then so this is a reread for me. And I can see... I so I appreciate it now in my in my current age more than I did when yeah, I read yeah. it in my twenties. It's quite interesting. I can see that Hemingway's being quite deliberate. You know, Paris in spring is civilized and contained. There's a calmness to it, and there's a monotony to their lives. Now they've arrived for a fiesta in Spain, and there's this heat, and there's color, and there's drama. And, you know, depending upon your point of view, there's this ritual, almost sacred status of the bullfight in Spain. Hemingway 
as you know, has written a lot about bullfighting. Uh, in 1932, he wrote Death in the Afternoon, which is a non-fiction book about the sort of ceremony and traditions of Spanish bullfighting. I read that in my 20s as well, and I remember finding it incredibly hard to read because he kind of traverses, as he does in this book, you know, a potentially dubious line between celebrating this almost religiosity of bullfighting with the appalling record of animal rights. And, you know, I can't comment on the record now of Spain, but I think it's pretty well stated that in the past Spain had had a pretty bad record with animal rights. But it's interesting because the fervour and the drama that builds during a fiesta through the bullfighting and the cult of celebrity around the bullfighters is sort of mirrored. I knew you were going to say this. It mirrored the people. in the drama oh, I love around this group of friends. I love it. Oh, and so that's so clever. It, it's really interesting because you could read this quite superficially, as I believe I did in my twenties. Yes. Yeah. And I've I have a whole new mm. respect having reread it again now. It's a superb book. It, I I want to read that because. Now that I know or I feel like I have a better overview of the sort of the First World War, the post-First World War, a little bit about Spanish Civil War, Second World War and then and things like post-traumatic stress and, yes. and the, yes. the gassing that happened in the First World yes. War but not the Second. So I'm sort of fascinated about this and also now that we've lived through a pandemic, I'm really fascinated about the social changes yes. that happen with yeah, absolutely. big cataclysmic yeah. world events. Yeah. And what ha- how people respond to those and whether they reach back for comforting things or whether they think this is a chance for change, like, you know, we've got Me Too and Black Lives Matter yes. and all sorts of things, you know, the climate emergency, and you know, we're sort of surging forward with other things. I'm sort of fascinated to drill it's, into it's, each. And, of course, Hemingway wasn't British, so no, he no. wasn't involved in the First World War in the same way that maybe that, British guy was. Yes, but, but Jake is American, but yes, a couple of them, Mike Campbell so they're is. So they've all got different they have, um, positions, yes, haven't they? They have, and they've all, they've all been in different places yeah, as well which I find uh, during the war. So it's fascinating. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's oh, fascinating to also place it in the context of Hemingway himself, who in many respects was a privileged, yeah. you know, who gets to yeah. go and live in Paris and become yeah. a writer. Well, you can um, picture all those photos of him. Yes. Yeah. With the, at the French coffee tables yes. with the women with the beautiful outfits yeah. and I can so it's picture really, all those photos. It's a, it's, it really is a – but it leaves you feeling quite uneasy. Yeah. And I, I should just mention because it's a bit of fun, there's actually a cocktail called Death in the Afternoon, oh. which of course is his bullfighting book and it's a mixture of absinthe and champagne, oh. of course, and it was created actually by the author. So there was a 1935 cocktail book. And it featured recipes from celebrity authors in 1935, which is fascinating. So he created this cocktail uh, with absinthe and champagne. And in the book, Hemingway says, pour one jigger absinthe into a champagne glass, add iced champagne until it attains the proper opalescent milkiness, drink three or five of these slowly. (laughs) And I thought he was going to say at the end, and fiesta. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So that's fiesta or the sun also rises. By Fabulous, Lou. Mm, loved it. Oh, loved we're really it. getting a feel for lots of different aspects of Spain here. Yes. I loved your reference to um, 
Sanchez in Yes, I know. That's the benefit of reading some of those really old books too because yeah. those things would just pass you by. You think, who's Sanchez? Well, <laughs> what, what, what's also fascinating, if we now look back at so many books we've written where a protagonist has a sidekick. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. you think, well, if indeed Don Quixote is one of the first yeah. novels or yeah. the first yeah, novel, yeah. maybe that is something That's that right. people, you yeah. know. But I, I'm going to write a book about a sidekick. With, with a sidekick, yeah. yeah. So I uh, decided for my second book to do one of my slightly foxed um, oh, limited edition how books. Good. I get one every month. Oh, isn't and it pretty I'm as well? Falling behind, and I'm I've been dying to read this. So this is called As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. Oh, what a great title! And it's by Laurie Lee, mm. and he's best known for his book Cider with Rosie. Mm. Uh, he was a British writer who lived from 1914 to 1997. Oh, wow. And he came from a small village called Slad in Gloucestershire. And mm. Slad does not sound... It doesn't write. How's it spelt? S-L-A-D. Weird. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And when he was about 19, Laurie Lee headed off on foot and walked off on a trip. So Mm. I'm just going to read this tiny little bit from um, Mm. the beginning. He says, it was 1935. I was 19 years old, still soft at the edges, Mm. but with a confident belief in good fortune. I carried a small rolled up tent, a violin in a blanket, a change of clothes, a tin of treacle biscuits and some cheese. I was excited, vainglorious, knowing I had far to go, but not as yet how far. As I left home that morning and walked away from the sleeping village, it never occurred to me that others had done this before me. How beautifully, what a good yeah, he's writer. A, he's a beautiful, beautiful writer. He is a beautiful writer. Yeah. It's, it's a delight to read the yeah. whole thing. So he just decided to head off. He went first to London and then he decided to go to Spain mainly because he'd had a Spanish girlfriend who taught him, <laughs> can I please have a glass of water? That was all he knew in Spanish, but he thought, well, that'll do. And I'm surprised it was water as well, just quietly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is that it your was priority? It was something along those lines anyway, something very banal. And it was his one sentence. So he arrives in Spain in 1935. And, of course, we know that that was the year before the Spanish Civil War started. I think it was actually a bit more than a year, as in I think the war started during 1936. So he spends a year walking around Spain. So he basically, he does some labouring, particularly in London, he did some labouring. And then pretty much the rest of the time, he he's a busker mm. with his fiddle, with his violin, uh, which is not in a case, it's just wrapped up in a blanket. Yeah. So you can see the level of simplicity. Mm. And there was not the thriving tourist industry that there is now. Often he was stared at as a complete stranger every time he arrived in a new village. Mm. Everyone knew that he was an outsider. Yeah. He only knew that one phrase in Spanish. So he had to work quite hard. It was really quite a hard trip and it was pretty gruelling. And he didn't have great shoes. He didn't have camping gear apart from his little probably very basic tent back Mm. then. He had very little money except what he earned as a busker. And he knew not one single person in Spain. So he started off in Galicia and he he sort of works his way gradually south and it's quite a lot of fun. I kept pulling up my phone and sort of tracing Mm. where each town he went to. And he went to sort of different places from the places that I've been in Spain and I kept thinking, why didn't he go over there? You know, (laughs) it was quite fun. 
he recounts lots of great anecdotes about things that happen with different people he comes across and boarding houses and sleeping under the stars and all the crazy people he meets along the way. So it's it's full of really great stories. And you get this sense of Spain then. It's a great snapshot of Spain. It's quite a rural, innocent sort of place, I think mm. I would describe it. And each village is very separate from itself. It's not the global world that we know today. They're quite unsophisticated. It's a, a very different time. And I think this gives you a great insight. But what into a lovely, simple life. Though. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But also very hard. Yeah. Okay. You know, okay, you can romanticize yes. all those elements of it, but it was yes. equally terribly, yes. terribly difficult at times. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like everything, there's, a, there's two sides. And he ends up in a town which is actually called Al Munikar, and I'm not probably pronouncing that correctly. Mm which he gave a different name to in this book for so he sort of wanted to give the town its privacy. Yes. He calls it Castillo. And I, I didn't know this and I spent ages yes. Googling Castillo. And I, so it took me a long time to f- discover I, yes. an article about why he changed the name oh, okay. and all sorts of things. And then I had to go back and start all over again looking at, at mm. this new town. And he gets to know the local fishermen and the labourers and he sort of gets drawn in to the movement which is leading to the civil war, which is just fascinating. Yeah. I can't even really imagine a civil war where people in one country rise up against each other, you know, like it's like the people in your suburb fighting against the people in my suburb. I just can't even sort of imagine how that would work. But you remember Jessica Mitford's husband? Yes. I mean, so many people from England. All the brigades. Yeah, came out. The international brigades. Yeah, they did. They they all came out because they felt very upset about Britain's position, which was non-involvement. Yeah. So Russia and one other country, I forget what, Russia in particular, really supported the populist movement and gave them guns and things. But a lot of countries like Great Britain did nothing. Yes. They sort of yeah. supported them in principle but wouldn't do anything to help. And that's why all these, the, the international brigades were massive. And the labour movement. You, you all, see all the photos yeah. of them all turning up to help. Yes. Um, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and then you think the book's coming to an end. He's sort of in a town. He's, he's in this place, which I'll call Castillo because that's yes. the chapter of the book. And he's with a novelist and he deliberately doesn't say the name because some of these people are subsequently famous. And he says, my friend, and you think, is that the woman that he was having an affair with who was married? And <laughs> you know, I'm not quite yes. sure. There's yeah. all sorts of interesting things on the internet mm. if you Google around. And all the villagers, a big destroyer comes into the harbour. Oh, wow. And, well, two things happen. First of all, another big destroyer comes into the harbour one night. It's the most fascinating story. And it just sits there very menacingly. And all the people are looking out to see, thinking, what is this boat doing? And it shines this huge big beam along the mountain and it mm. follows this jeep with these soldiers in it that, or, you know, these people with guns, follows them down the hill. And then there's this sudden boom. Oh, no. And nothing happens. And then the whole sky lights up and... This boat has fired on the town and a house just dissolves in seconds and slides down the hill. It's like a sort of equivalent to a mortar bomb. People come running out and grabbing their children and running up the hill, terrified. And he is just struck. No one knows what to do. They think, what the hell, who is this? And then two men who he knows, who are his friends in the town, get in a little rowboat and row out to the boat and say, what the heck are you doing? Mm. And it turns out it's a boat on their side who's made a mistake 
and thinks it's the enemy and is firing on them. So How brave, though, to go out in a yep, row? They rowed out and they'd forgotten to take their guns. And so they row back. And so the boat says, oh, sorry, we made a mistake and just sails off <laughs> to the sunset. And no one really says anything more oh, about it because it's the most amazing story. And mm. that is just alone. It's worth reading the book for that story. And then a short time later, another big destroyer comes into the harbour and then all of the locals come running up and knocking on the door and saying, you've got to come, you've got to come. The British are here to take you home. Pack all your stuff. And he basically, he realises that his year in Spain has come to an end. Uh And he goes down and um, there's a sort of a British, you know, the captain of the ship's down there and he says, come on, chap, time to come home. We've come to take you home and just sort of packs the novelist. And they're, they're sort of basically picking up any stray Brits, Brits who are going to get stuck in this <laughs> Spanish Civil War. Excellent use of taxpayers' money. <laughs> million, it's a multi-million dollar vessel and it's just pulled in just to get them. <laughs> it's the most, that is also a fascinating story. Well, it's also fascinating in light of pandemics yep. when we've left people stranded yeah. or yep. or other yeah. you know wars that are taking yeah. place and we've left people stranded yep. how fascinating yep. they just they thought they'd pull in and see if there were any stray mm. Brits that needed a lift home so he ends up back at home and he's, it sort of causes him to reflect and he thinks I I just can't leave those people he's very much on the side yes. of the populist movement mm. he's just become very attached to them so he goes back and he goes in, I think it's via France from memory. Mm. That chapter is the most fascinating chapter. He goes back and it's all guarded. There are men at every checkpoint. At roads are all blocked off and everyone's saying, you can't come in. There's a war going on in mm. Spain. No one can come in. Mm. I think the international brigades probably were an exception to that yes. because they were they, they were probably legitimised and they were organised and they had vehicles yes. and, you yeah. know, brought stuff with them but one little bloke with his sort of yes, bag correct. over his shoulder is not going to be allowed in so he sort of hangs around in this town and thinks how am I going to get back in there so he says, I'm just going to have to climb the mountain so he basically just mm. heads off under cover of night one night and walks over the Pyrenees through snow and Ooh, the uh, most amazing things and he's sort of on his hands and knees it's like something out of a movie He's doing an Eric Newby. Yeah, it's exactly like that, except it's midwinter and it's snowing and he sort of staggers into Mm. an area and some people find him in a town and then they they don't want to be getting into any trouble because people had to do things sort of undercover because the fascists would Mm. take revenge on them. So there was a lot of this sort of things said in in pubs and I'll meet you around the corner and this sort of thing. Anyway, he, he got in. And mm. the, the book ends with him about to go off and fight in oh, the war. Wow. And you, so you don't know, you don't know what, what, what happened next. Uh, and there, I don't even know, actually. I haven't got to the point of discovering whether there's another recounting of the next chapter of his life. But uh, I loved it. it was, yeah, and it's such a, a small book as well. It's a little, but, but it's tiny print though. That's Look at true. It. It's, it does. It's, but wow, it must pack a punch with all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, so it's sort of a travel memoir. It's a great snapshot in time yeah. about social mores mm. and cultural mores. And I mean, what we think is acceptable to take with us traveling and what we think we would require to go traveling in another country versus what he <laughs> had. Um, and what he survived with. We've all become very soft, though, haven't we? We're so soft. 
So that was As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning by Laurie Lee. It was completely delightful. I love that, Jenny. Um, I loved it. And it really gave me a lovely flavour of Spain and lots of different parts of Spain. So it's sort of set, I think we're well set up now for Yes, I uh, think we reading, are. I can't um, wait Quixote for Don Quixote. Because we've sort of covered lots of different mm. parts of it. So on that note, I thought I should just do a little reminder yes. that we are doing our book club episode on Don Quixote and we would love you to dig out a copy and read it. We're going to do the first half, yes, part one, in one episode mm. and then we're going to do the second half in a subsequent episode. And it will be a deep dive. There will be a deep dive. So it's worth reading it along yes. with us. And I know some people are. Yes, people have contacted me about mm. additions and all sorts of things, which is great. Mm. As is not uncommon with us, we're a little bit, uh, our timing has changed, shall I say, because <laughs> I think we'd sort of thought we might do it in June and we're already well into June now. And life comes at you and things happen. And so the next few months might be a little bit unpredictable for the podcast. Mm. Uh, we're just going to have to do our episodes as and when we can because we've got a few other little adventures going on. Mm. So I, I actually can't say at this point exactly when we yes. will do record the next episode, but it, we'll do it as soon as we can. Yes, but it, it might most be, certainly It might will. be two weeks, but it might be three or four. I just yeah. don't know. We'll, we'll, but, and I'll certainly post about it on Instagram and keep you updated, and then we'll do the second half after that. So Perfect, um, perfect. Looking forward to it, though. Yeah. And have you been diving into anything else? Uh, look, just bits and pieces, not a lot, to be honest. I have started watching Peaky Blinders, oh. Series 6, which is the, it's the final oh, uh, okay. series. The first episode of Season 6 opened really quite poignantly because uh, Helen McCroy, the British actress who... I love her. Um, she died. She's died, yes. And so... They open with with her character, who is Aunt Polly, Polly, That's right. dying, having been caught in the crossfire between the Peaky Blinders and some people who were trying to assassinate Oswald Mosley. So the era of Peaky Blinders has now moved into this pre World War Two era. It's um, the same era that it we've is, been which, about. which is why I thought it would yeah. be quite interesting. Tommy Shelby, who is the head of the Shelby family, the Peaky Blinders has become a Labor MP and he is oh, okay. courting very loose relations with Oswald Mosley because it's beneficial to him, not because he likes him, he can't stand him. But what is interesting is that we, we it's the first series in which we meet Mosley's mistress, oh. Diana Guinness, Diana oh, Mitford. Uh, and I have to say, they've taken a bit of licence with Diana, okay, in, my, right. in my opinion. Okay. Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to watch that. But it's really worth, yeah, really, yeah. really worth oh. watching. So I've been really enjoying that. How fabulous. Yeah. And what mm. about you? I have been diving into a few things. One uh, thing I really loved is a thing we watched called A Call to Spy. I've actually forgotten now where we saw it. But it centres around three young women involved in the French Resistance during Ooh, World War II, and I yes. love anything French yes. Resistance. I think I would have loved to have been in that time, although I think I would have been too much of a chicken. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of them is located in Whitehall, and we've stayed in a mm. um, hotel down near Whitehall, and I just spent the whole time walking around thinking, <laughs> this I wonder is where if it Winston worked, walked around these steps, you know. It's just fabulous. Mm. And she recruits young women to be telegraph operators and they go into France disguised. And the actress who plays one of the telegraph operators, the character's name is Virginia. Oh, there you uh, go. And 
this actress researched and wrote the screenplay. She researched it for years, apparently. Mm. She's quite a distinctive-looking woman. And she plays a woman who has an amputated leg. Mm. So she has a very clunky wooden leg, which as they did at, at yes. that time. It's not like now. Mm. I don't know if that's what she really has, whether that was just cleverly done yes. for the screenplay. But it was really, really gripping and you didn't know who was a double agent. Mm. Uh, Michael and I kept saying, oh, do you think he's a double agent? Is he, <laughs> is he telling her the truth? Who, who's authorised this? Yes. Was, I just loved it. Mm. I absolutely loved it. And I would recommend it if you like that sort of thing. So that's a, a call to spy. And the other thing I'm completely addicted to is The White Queen on Netflix. Yes, yes. Which is all about Edward the Fourth, and he leading up to the princes in the tower and Richard the Third. And I really didn't know a great deal about that time in history. I studied a lot of history, did modern history and ancient history, but I haven't really done the Tudors and all that sort of thing. And I've been reading books about it. This adaptation is really fabulous because it's reasonably true to the actual events. And the woman who plays uh, Lady Elizabeth Grey, who marries King Edward, is so incredibly beautiful, which she was in real life. And he was so captivated by her and he sort of married her in secret and all that sort of thing. It was a real love story, Lady Grey. It really was. I remember it being a really... It's very watchable. He was yes. he was said to be very handsome, and this one is. And then there's all the machinations with the two brothers, and yeah, it was um, very sad. The War of the Roses, and so I just cannot tell you how much I have absolutely the, loved. Yes, it. okay. So the War of the Roses is Henry and Richard, isn't it? The, yes, the, so the House sort of, of Gaunt. Com- it's sort of coming through and Lancaster. coming towards its end. So the Earl of Warwick is doing mm. all his machinations, and then there's Prince. Richard and Prince George mm. and the ne- the Neville sisters. And mm. It's fa- it's just fabulous. Uh, and the other thing I am, although I'm actually a tad behind because we had a little holiday, but I'm also enjoying the podcast, The Teacher's Trial. Oh, yes, I'm loving it. Oh. Which is another Hedley Thomas podcast following the trial of Christopher Dawson, who's charged with murdering his wife, Lynn, 40 years ago. And we are addicted to we this, are, is it? Probably the most addicted people in Perth. I well, would it's say. the genesis for our Murderinos it's group, isn't it? Completely, how we became Murderinos, <laughs> and uh, I sort of worry that Headley is going to say something that's going to abort the whole trial. Yes, well, he has—he's on—he's on notice, isn't yeah. he? He's been put on notice. Yeah. Anyway, I, 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 it sort of creates an extra frisson for me, <laughs> and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess in true crime podcasts, where you know, you have these investigative journalists that are prepared to go the extra mile to try and find out why people died or where they are or they're lost. And then as a result of that, the police get involved. They wouldn't have got involved no. had it not been for the journalist's no. in excellent investigative yeah. work. Yeah. And yet the criticism the, of the this. idea that that could possibly prejudice a yeah, trial is this fine line, yeah, it's isn't it? Fine line. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm absolutely glued mm, yeah, to no, the entire too. thing. And, of course, I can remember little details from the podcast. Yes. And so when things are reported in the paper or said, I'm sort of... Are you shouting, shouting at the newspaper? I'm shouting at the newspaper. <laughs> yes. podcast, but he said he saw her on Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> I, know. 
I've been doing a bit of that as well. I actually <laughs> underlined something in the paper the other day. I thought, that's not right. I did a big circle around it. <laughs> big, big, oh yeah, there was an allegation that the person who had the most to lose was was X and thinking that's nonsense. Anyway, it's, I completely. It's, we should be there, you know. We should be there for the trial. I'm, just, <laughs> I would so love to do that. In fact, don't start me because I've actually been thinking about yeah, that might that might be something to do. So that's the delay of the podcast. Virginia's <laughs> going to Sydney. <laughs> I'm busy. I'm sitting in the witness stand giving my two bobs worth about who did what. So that's it for us this time. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our little trip to Spain and around Spain. I loved Spain. This yeah, week. yeah, was that great. was fun. Mm. And we're really looking forward to diving into the first half of Don Quixote. I've made a start and I'm loving it. Yes. Um, and I've sort of interrupted it and I've read a couple of other things. So my next thing is to go back and re-dive back into it in preparation. And we hope you'll join us. We sure do. Okay, bye. 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 We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. A little, little bit of background checking over there. No, no, no. No, I'm turning off someone who's ringing. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> ringing. Sorry, I thought you were checking. checking. What year was the Spanish Civil War? <laughs> I was not checking. I was turning my phone oh, off because so I had a funny. call.